Hi listeners, this is Brent Sutton. Welcome to Season 4 and the 96th episode of the Practice for Learning Teams podcast show. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Morris Chip Mauser IV. In my travels and exploration of HOP and learning teams, there has been a close link between HOP practitioners and military service, and in particular, nuclear submarine operations. I have been fortunate to speak with many ex-military people including CHIP, who drives the integration of human and organisational performance principles and learning teams within a military supplier of goods and services. CHIP lives and breathes HOP in daily operations to improve the quality of operational intelligence that he obtains in order to drive continuous improvement in safety and other functional areas. So please sit back and enjoy this two-part series with CHIP as we explore everything about HOP. Um, and I'll cut some bits out, and, and none of this is video, it's all audio based. <laughs> that's great, because I got a face for radio, so. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's what Todd keeps telling me, so that, that that's fine. <laughs> so, uh, Chip, well, look, well, welcome to the show. I've been meaning to reach out for you for quite some time, because because I see you posting on LinkedIn from time to time. And, and I think what really interests me is the fact that there are a lot of ex-military people who have been going down this sort of hop learning teams journey. And I recall back in 2019, I was up with Todd in Denver at a, at a, at a group called the, 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 big, the Big Speak, I think it was, looking at the future of hop and learning teams. And a number of those guys that were there were all ex-nuclear submarine people. So what is it with nuclear submarines and hop and learning teams? Yeah, well, at least from, from my perspective, I mean, I, I partly come from that community. Uh, I served on a nuclear-powered submarine from uh, two different submarines from 1997 until, uh, yeah, I guess around 2000, yeah, late 2001, and went through all the Navy's nuclear power training before that. So I think part of it may, <laughs> may be the way that we uh, weren't always that good at learning, quite frankly. It was a right. lot about blame. Um, if you made an error uh, there, it was you know quickly, okay, what do we have to do? Who do we have to retrain? How quickly can we disqualify them? Uh, will they requalify? So it was absolutely crime and punishment um, and very little I can't ever remember being asked about the context of any accident, nor, nor would I even have thought of it at that time. It just wasn't how we were brought up in the, in the, in my experience, at least in naval nuclear power was very much, uh, you know, you, you eat your young and, uh, right. it's a lot of us were, <laughs> I, I proceeded to, to have a good career. I enjoyed my time. Um, but it was, yeah, it's definitely challenging. And I think maybe, at least for me, when I look back and see all the things we didn't learn because of the blame game, it just right. makes me shake my head and cringe. And I, I see why the you know mistakes that are 
you know, there's no two incidents or accidents that are ever exactly alike, but very similar, you know, type events occur a year later, two years later, because all we did was try to train the people. And I think particularly in that community in the military, your turnover, you've got people rotating, people are on a boat from three to five years. So there's sort of a, a, a shelf life, if you will, of that training. So if you're relying only on training people and trying to affect behavior, that, okay, maybe you get through to a few people, but they leave and they take it with them. And now you've got to go through the same process again. Right. And so, do, you think, do you think they were trying to train people to act, not to think? No, definitely not. I won't say that. I would say that was one thing that Naval Nuclear Power was particularly good about was to always ask. You were encouraged to have a questioning attitude. Right. Uh, at least at least on the surface, we were told that. Um, I won't say that your questions were always terribly well received. Uh, I don't think anybody had read Amy, you know, Amy Edmonds, the fearless organization was written, what, in 99. So at least during my time in nuclear power school and early, early on on the boats. Um, yeah, that really wasn't much of a, a thought, but we were always told to challenge and to ask. I mean, if the office, if the officer sitting behind me gives me an order to do something, I should take a second to think about what it is. I'm not going to blindly do it without. So there was definitely a questioning attitude that was encouraged, at least at a surface level. But as far as deeply valuing and actually coming and asking us for our feedback, that wasn't something that happened all that often. I won't say that there was much. And part of that has to do with the that maybe some of the rank structure, the hierarchy that exists in a military organization. But I definitely saw an evolution. I saw a change over the course of that. You know, when I started recruit training in December of 92 to when I retired in, you know, 2015, you saw the influence that had happened to a lot of leadership. My last job, because I switched over and became a, a pilot, I was a naval aviator for the second half of my career. And I will say that my captain and XO on the last ship I was on in the aircraft carrier, the Ronald Reagan, they talked with, with everybody on the, on the ship and actively sought input and feedback and were was a completely different kind of leadership than what I saw at the beginning of my career. So right. it's the, the military is able to make that adjustment, I think. And it's, uh, and it was interesting to see the difference between aviation where we were really encouraged to speak up. I mean, we had a, we had a program that started when I was halfway through my squadron tour around 2008. That was, uh, what was it called? I try, I can't remember the name of it right now, but basically at the end of every flight, even in normal flight with no, no real events, nothing reportable, they asked us for our observations. And it was non-attributable. There was, you didn't put your name. There was no way to try. It was completely mm -hmm. anonymous, but it all went into the squadron safety officer. And then at the quarterly pilots meeting, we'd go through these things. And what was interesting is it became so normal that usually you'd stand up and go, hey, that was me. We, we did okay. that. And then it, it always generated some really interesting discussion. And I'd never heard of Hop. I'd never heard of, I hadn't heard of Decker. I hadn't heard of Whole Nagel, David Woods, any of these people at that time. So I didn't realize where probably a lot of that was coming from. But naval aviation, at least, was trying to push in that direction to, uh, you know, to solicit our input and our feedback on what's happening when nothing's happening. Just because yeah. there was no report, just because there's no reportable event that day doesn't mean that you didn't do something that's worth sharing or discussing and finding out, okay, did the barriers function as they were supposed to, or do we need to do something to make the system stronger? And so that was, I think for me, at least when I look back now, I can see 
those experiences through the lens of, of hop and learning teams. And I'm like, wow, if we, <laughs> if we'd actually learned more about the theory, we could have gotten a lot out of this. Yeah. And, uh, I, I've pushed some of my friends. I have some of my good friends that I was jun a junior officer with that are, you know, one of my good friends just became a commanding officer. And I gave him, you know, I gave him the Edgar Schein book, uh, humble inquiry. And I gave him Decker's field guide to understanding human error as he's starting his command to work. So I was like, these are probably going to be valuable for you. And uh, so we've had some interesting discussions based on those, those books, but uh, yeah. So I think at least to me, that's what attracted me. And I'm, you know, one of, you know, probably thousands of veterans you guys may talk to, or, you know, re military retirees or guys who've served. And yeah, you definitely, you definitely see more of the blame game in that world. And maybe that's what attracts us to this is oh, if we could, if only we could have learned more and have been asked things in a different way, we would have gotten, you know, you would have gotten a lot more out of uh, events and maybe done some real, real operational learning. So, yeah, well, look, definitely the people I come across are very passionate about this type of learning and just what you were describing before that, that those groups together with those, that, um, that team, that flight officer, that was really looking for weak signals. That was the objective. Absolutely. We just didn't. And the good thing was, is it was administered. It was explained to us in such a way. And we had enough trust in the system to be anonymous. And it was never, yeah. it was never, it was never abused by our squadron leadership. Right. You know, so we really embraced it at that time. I'm not sure if they're still using that system today or another version of it. But during, during my time in the squadron, about three years when I was, you know, flying a lot, we, uh, we got some good value out of it. It served as a great discussion point for our, you know, quarterly meetings to talk about, you know, what, what do we need to get better at? You know, what can we share? What can we learn from one another? Yeah. And, and, and I, I think, think that's... Look, no, I, I agree. And, and what I see quite often, Chip, is that um, these signals that come to the surface through this type of inquiry... Um, organizations say to me, well, how do we know that we're doing it well? And I'm saying, well, it's, it's where those same signals don't keep repeating, but what you're looking for is different signals to then come to the surface. Yeah, and, if you're getting and, a wide variety of things you never expected, then the system's working. Absolutely. But it, so it's <laughs> looked like they sort of, it was as though they were asking this question, um, how do we get rid of these signals? And I'm saying, no, it's, it's the, yes, it's the presence of them that matters. I know, but it's what we've been conditioned to, to believe. Well, yeah, I think it comes from those. It comes, I think a lot of it is the legacy of these zero goals, you know, and I think just trying to explain to people that if you actually achieve zero, it may be the most dangerous thing that could ever happen to you because it's like, I just liken it to, it's driving your car with, with, a, with blind, spray paint the windshield of your car and every, mm -hmm. all the windows in your car inside and out and start driving because that's what you're doing once you get rid of those signals. I mean, good luck to you. I think it's, uh, I, I, don't, I don't understand why people think that less information is positive but it's again i think it's it's the legacy of zero and counting and and what do the regulators ask for you know you get you constantly you know people are always looking at lost time injury frequency and things like that you know and the lower that is the better and i think it's very difficult to compare you know it's actually compare apples to apples and not apples to oranges you can't just look at a lost time injury frequency value and, and think that 
that's directly comparable across industry, across companies, or even units in the same company. I mean, it's an indicator, but it's not a key performance indicator, I would say. Well, look, I, I'm, for me, it's telling us that that the hazard released some energy. The hazard did yeah, its it, job, but, you know? Yeah, yeah, and it, it, it's it's okay to look back at and say, okay, this is this is where it happened this year. But as a, as an indicator for the future, and a predict as any sort of think that it has any sort of predictive power, I think is is foolish at best and dangerous at worst. Yes. You know, it's uh... <laughs> look, look. I agree. I mean, you know, I I think there is um, benefit in learning from events. I don't think they're necessarily quality learnings, but the learnings from events definitely provide a restorative component to people. It's about you know rebuilding that faith, rebuilding all those things. I I, I don't. I personally believe that better learning comes from proactive than from reactive because there's less emotion in proactive learning. Absolutely. I think it's, uh, I think that's definitely true. The, the emotion aspect you can't underestimate, but one thing I will say, at least for, for me who, and within the organization I work for, we're very early on this journey. And honestly, the, in the beginning, one of the only avenues you have to maybe you know use this as a micro experiment, if you will, is to mm-hmm. try to to try to ask those different questions following an event. Yes. Um, and and that's my experience. We had one of our locations that, you know, I got an email from the site manager who told me, you know, we had this had this event occur. No one's injured. You know, nothing like that. But we feel it's serious enough that we want to take the time to talk about it. But our preliminary, you know, feelings are that it's, you know, it's it's an operator didn't follow the procedure and will likely do some training. And this was, I think, last autumn. And I was like, this is a perfect opportunity for me to actually try this. Mm-hmm. And so it was during a little pause in Corona last fall. So I was able to, to travel up to this site and we spent uh, and I told them what I wanted to do, that I wanted to just talk with with the site manager, my safety manager there, their technical expert who wasn't actually involved with the event, just the four of us, because I didn't right. know I didn't know the frontline workers well enough that they would be comfortable with me. You know, as me coming from corporate, uh, the, you know, the central corporate function, they're not going to open up to me. They're going to be like, why is this guy here? Uh, he's going to, you know, he's on a witch hunt and then everything's going to shut down. But uh, I was able to meet with the leadership at least and say, OK, let's go through this. Let's discuss the normal. How does this normally work? What is and yeah. that's what, And it was to this day still the best day at work I've had try, since I started reading about this was because we spent probably four or five hours talking about not the event. We talked about everything, everything around the event, all the context and the things we dug up and the things we learned along the way were so much more interesting than human error. I mean, we found stuff, you know, there was, there were things that just in the, in the design, the material that actually was, was evolved in this event, that they actually, there were no requirements. There was no specification for that material. And that material had changed unbeknownst to the operators about three or four months prior, and they just lived with it. And part of it is the fact that this was a site that had struggled financially for some years. So they're used to, and very proud of making do with what they get. It's, it's, they're, they're, they're proud of it. So that part of the context and that cultural 
I guess that, you know, that, that sort of cultural legacy and that, and that pride of, Hey, we make do with what we get. But then you, when you look back, you go, if you got, you know, this is maybe a way we could try to not put people in that position and set them up for the same kind of thing down the road. And it was just everything we found. We had a, a, just a laundry list of things we could address at a systemic level rather than doing what the the first, the initial email I got which was okay you know we're going to do some we're going to do some training and and uh talk about this and and then if I think the same thing would have happened again and it's interesting because that site now is is very proactive and positive and we've seen their report for a little tiny site of about 20 people they report they have so many of these weak signals that they're reporting all the time because right. now they're they feel they seem to feel pretty comfortable with it and um, so it's uh, that that is that one place. If we could just export some of that to some of our other locations, I think we'll be you know it'll. And I think that's the other, for me. It's been identify. Okay, here was a place where this could work, and I wear that story out because it's it, it shows that this can work. That you can talk about an event without talking about what actually happened. Talk about all the normal things. And then you're going to get all this context-rich information that you can go back and and make systematic improvements so that maybe you're going to guarantee success next time and you're not just trying to avoid the failure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so for me at least the I think that's you know try you've got to find the organization that's willing to try it within your the broader organization if because we the company I work for we're at about 28 production sites in nine different countries with seven languages. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, there's unique with four business units and all these companies have their legacies and, and different, you know, it's, there's lots of subcultures. And that's what, to me, when I, when somebody argues, oh, how can you, what is this hop stuff? You know, what is, what are you trying to do here? You know, what kind of program is this? And I just always counter that it, it's not a program. It's, it's a philosophy. It's a way to take what we already have, build upon it and make it better. By just small changes in how you ask questions after an after an event, prior to an event, why aren't we asking? How did we beat our quota yesterday? I was at a site a few weeks ago, and they were showing me their production quotas and their and their goals, and there were several days where they exceeded their targets. And I was like, oh, I said, that. I said that's crazy. I said, what did you know? What did you guys do on those days? Did you go back and nobody asked? <laughs> they didn't oh. really spend any. They didn't spend any time on it. Instead, they were focusing on all the days they didn't achieve the goal. And it just, you know, it, it just takes me back to, you know, the, I can't remember if it's, if it's Holnagel or one of his PhD students who, who likened, you know, that the way safety's always had it backwards with studying yeah. failure to try to achieve success. And he likened it to studying divorce to have a successful marriage. Absolutely. You know, it's, yeah. It's, you know, however I'm paraphrasing it awful, awfully, it's, it, it just, that, that one little metaphor there often helps people sort of, okay. Now I understand what you mean. It lightens it a little bit, and it it's so illustrative. Well, look, even so. what you're describing um, has that whole um, connection back to Lean and Deming's work, where where basically you know the opportunity to better understand is when those work teams um, are not just underperforming but also overperforming. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that learning from success is just something. We simply don't make the time for it. We're so pleased that we were successful that we forget it. But I think it's, uh, yeah, no, I think, I think Deming and that connection to Lean is one of the things I really liked from, uh, from your book, you know, the book that you, you wrote with your co-authors is those, you know, is that connection to Lean was 
something I've thought a little bit about with Hop, but then to to read it explicitly the way you all describe it in that book. And then it gave me the idea, well, I need to share this with my colleague who is responsible for continuous improvement. Mm-hmm. And he read it and he he called me and told me, this is maybe the best practical lean book I've read. Wow. Is <laughs> so, that he, right? he, <laughs> so he he loved it. He fell in love with the whole idea. And now that's, you know, now I have a, a good ally yeah. and, it, 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 and it helps a lot because he sees the value for for quality and and not just quality, but any improvement work. It can be administrative processes. It, it doesn't have Absolutely. to just be production. So, you know, but I think I think what's interesting when you talk about and part of the other thing to get to the maybe the folks who are very big on quality and continuous improvement is to use Deming's 14 points and talk to them about eliminate fear. That's one mm-hmm. of the points. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, it's it's so simple. Like remove barriers to the pride of workmanship, you know, set people up for success. And and to, you know, to make transformation everybody's job, you can't do that if you don't engage in a dialogue and respect the expertise of your frontline workers. If you're not doing that, all the information you're missing. So I think when I, when you look at Deming's 14 points, I think it I to me, they're they're every bit as relevant for for safety work. It's not that it's purely the, the domain of quality. So, uh, no, I think it's yeah. Deming was doing psychological safety before there was psychological safety. Okay. And, and if you look at his profound um, um, system of knowledge, you know, way ahead, even I was talking recently, if you go back to um, the PDCA cycle, the predecessor from Walter Schuert, the Schuert, the Schuert cycle, Walter Sherwood was talking about weak signals in the 1930s. Yeah. Okay. This is like, and he was a physicist and, and he could just imagine, he said, just imagine if we had ways of distinguishing um, data from the noise. Just imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if, if only he could gain more traction than Heinrich's pyramid. <laughs> Maybe yeah, we'd well, be in a better place. Although, <laughs> or at least um, the corruption of Heinrich's pyramid. I, I don't know if you've seen my little video where where I actually morph Heinrich's pyramid into uh, Professor Eric Honagel's. Okay, I'll have to look for it then. I haven't, yeah, I haven't le- seen it. Learning from I... everyday work where Eric basically has, you know, accidents are tiny, incidents are bigger, everyday work is huge, and you've got to yeah. look out. So you can, if you morph, you take Heinrich's pyramid, invert it. Okay. Add normal oh. work at, at the top, you know? They're both saying the same thing, except they said it from different eras. I, I think mm. that's probably my my view. It's just that um, everyone took the ratio as the value <laughs> rather than what I call the quantum, which is to say mm. that we're more successful than unsuccessful. Uh, so it's, no, I... Yeah, I'll have to talk to Carson Bush about that. I've had uh, had been lucky enough to meet Carson and talk with him. Yeah. And I know he's he's written about he's written about oh, you know about uh, he's got the book about uh, absolutely no no Heinrich Pyramid. Yeah, no, look, it's a good book. And look, thank you for that feedback. I mean, we're actually um, we've been working the last year and a half. We've been trialing a concept and learning teams. Um, a, a lot of people have been asking us uh, about how to record a learning team and and I, and a lot of people say what's the value of recording it and, and 
what we looked at, we've created a concept called a an A3 storyboard. And the objective was that anyone in the organization from any level, from a frontline worker, all the way to the board member and the exec team could pick up a sheet, see the story of the event, see themselves in that story and take a learning from it. Hmm. And could you imagine getting rid of an investigation report and replacing it with a single A3 sheet of paper? Uh, it would definitely be, I think to, just to have that, that context and have the story, the argument or the feedback I got this summer, because I tried to, I've started to introduce this to the, the, a lot of the, the leaders, the, the safety leaders within the organization. Yeah. And one of the questions I got was, okay, this is really cool. How can I get, how can I put this into, into a checklist? Yes. So that I can, and, yep. and I, and, and I listened and in, inside a little part of me was dying. Cause I felt like I totally missed the mark with mm -hmm. what I was trying to, to communicate, but I just took a few breaths and then I said, okay. And I remembered, you know, I can't remember where I read it or, or who had said it, but I said, if you, if you turn, I think it's Bob Edwards actually. And, and maybe Bob and Andy Baker who talk about if you turn that on its head and you say instead, okay, I'm going to use the learning team, you know, the post-event learning team. And maybe if you use an A3 sheet or whoever you record, you know, this wall of discovery, whatever you've got, if you look at that, you're going to have more than enough information to go back and fill out your report rather than try to jam you know, the learning team and cram it into that report structure where it can become mechanical. And maybe you lose some of that, that natural ebb and flow of dialogue because you, what my whole point to him was you have to be humble enough to admit, I don't know what happened. I don't know why this happened. Yeah. But if you follow a checklist, then all the hindsight biases and and confirmation every all the confirmation by everything creeps in to where you start asking questions to confirm your initial bias and you wait till that aha where okay you didn't follow the procedure. Now I've got you. Absolutely. And 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 so it's uh so I think having an A3 sheet like that could be, you know, it could be really interesting. And again, appealing to the lean, the, you know, continuous improvement folks as well, who like that, you know, it's something they can relate to directly. It is. So, so we took Deming's eight step A3 and we looked at it and we, we sort of said, you know, once again, the objective here was that the outcome of this learning team was to share those learnings across the organization. Multi-jurisdictional, multi-people, diversity, all those things. And that anyone could pick it up and say, well, I could see something similar here. Or mm -hmm. I've encountered something similar here. So it wasn't about um, creating notice boards. It wasn't about you know all those things. It was about... And, and the reason we call it storyboard is that it's to share the story because people love stories. And the approach that we've taken is that the storyboard is based on the principles of Hopin learning teams. We've got a framework of these eight panels, as we call it, that give that logical flow. But within each panel, we can use different tools depending on the maturity of the facilitator or the maturity of the organization. 
So, so an example was an organization, they, they were wedded to a particular investigation model and telling all the safety people that model was wrong isn't the answer. Um, and this model had a causation process that it used that generated questions. Okay, and once again, I agree with you that questioning those types generates biases. And when I asked people why they use that process, they talk about completeness. They do it for completeness, which, which I know it sounds sad, but when you talk about a learning team, that's the thing that horrifies people because the learning team is organic and they're looking for this completeness. So what we did is that we gave them effectively what we call a tether, something to hold on to, because <laughs> it is a leap of faith. Absolutely. And we turned those five categories that they used from a questioning bank into a category for sorting the information coming from the stories of the workers about normal work and work on the day of the event. So we allowed them, if I use a, a, a naval term, to anchor <laughs> to something that they have always used, but allowed them to use it in a different way. Yeah, and again, yeah, I, well, I think that's part of the strength of this, of the whole, I guess, the, the hot principles and, and is the fact that it's right in the hot principles that context drives behavior and you yeah. have to respect that context for them those five things were really important and so find a way to make that fit into the framework that isn't it it, it doesn't defeat the purpose of, of how it can just be adjusted and now yeah. you now you're now you're building on something they already have so they're more comfortable with it and you'll get much more buy-in i mean i think yeah. it's that's the chat. That's part of the challenge. I, I can admit that being a, you know, coming from a world of nuclear power and being a pilot, I wanted a checklist. Yeah. I looked for like two and a half years. I wanted some kind of checklist I could use mm -hmm. that would guide me through this. And it would, and it would just, okay, I put in, you know, A, B and C, and then I'd get out the results and it could be repeatable and successful. Absolutely. Yeah. So we call but it, it's not, yeah. it's the fear of completeness. Yeah, exactly. And now I just, and I think after reading the, the shine book for me with humble inquiry and just get comfortable with the idea that you don't know the answer. I mean, that's, it's not easy to do. It, it, it's difficult as, as a leader in any organization, regardless of where you're at, you feel as though you have a responsibility. It's a moral imperative that you have the answers. But to me, that's old thinking. Maybe if you turn it around and just understand the world is too complex. No one's expecting you to be an expert on every machine in your yep. factory or facility. In fact, people enjoy telling you about what they do. And, oh, I, I and, think, yeah, I mean, organizations don't know how to listen. So, so what was interesting is that there was still this, there was still this desire to have a form of questioning. Okay, because that's that's how this group had, um, I don't know, been indoctrinated. Who knows? That was their belief. So taking that away from them, I use the analogy um, going from um, caged hens to free range. You open you open the cage door, and and they just don't go running out, rejoicing in life. Okay, 
they'll they'll put pipe the head out, they'll look around, they'll come back in. Okay? And over time they move further and further and further out. And they'll never go back in once they have a taste of of freedom. Um and I'm probably going to get a few emails about that. Um, <laughs> but it's the same thing. So so with this group, they had been reliant on a form of question bank. So to tell them they need to do that is too much of a step. So we use the four Ds with that group. So we use the four Ds of dumb, dangerous, difficult, different. And they've been doing that the last few months. Two weeks ago, the group came to me and they said, we now want to swap out in the storyboard the five category sorting tool that we used. We now want to change that and we want to put the four Ds in there instead. And I just asked the question, what brought about that change? And they said, the four Ds make sense to us. Hmm. Okay. So they evolved. We were forcing them to do that. No, not at all. I I have a question for you about with the four Ds. One of the the things that I probably never would have reacted to a few years ago, but particularly the the humble inquiry book, when we we talk about, about dumb, that's the one that always strikes me. Because to me, it's like, okay, you have to be very, I think you have to be somewhat careful if you use that, because it implies a judgment right away at least for me, when I first uh, hear yes, it. No, it, and, it, it and, does. No, and, it, and that, it does. Yeah, and that's the only thing about it that I honestly don't like. Um, and I, I and I, I laugh to myself because I would never have reacted to that probably two, two even three years, two years yes. ago. But after reading Shine's book, then I have, I, I like, it makes me, that's the only one that makes me a bit uncomfortable. But if you, so I think you have to look at it from the operator perspective and understand that to them, it appears dumb. You're not saying, so, you know what I mean? It's yeah. that, that it looks, it looks dumb from their perspective. So I think, I think if you use those terms, you have to be very aware of what it means to, 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 and be a bit cautious in using it because I, I'm a, the one thing that frightens me with it. And I, I haven't, I haven't spent enough time really thinking about how to employ it. Because uh, I think you could alienate some of your your leaders, some of your managers, because they may they may interpret that as as you know as well. What oh so I'm you know what I'm telling them to do is dumb, and then it brings the walls up. So I'm a I think you have to be very careful to make sure you don't undo some of the good work you've done if you use it. It's at least yeah, my, I don't have any experience with it. It's just my observation. Oh, look, I, I can share with you. Workers love it. Yeah. Like oh, I, I believe it. Yesterday, I was working with a, a small team of about eight guys, and um, the the, uh, the organization, you know, uh, every two weeks gets them together, and, and the guys choose a topic to talk about. And that that topic was um, about uh, mobile plant and and workers on foot. Okay, mm-hmm. so you know, I just. You know, kick off the conversation and say, look, guys, you know, in that situation where you've got, you know, mobile planter workers on foot, what are you currently relying on to keep safe? And they talked about, you know, visual awareness, you know, beeping the horn. So, so they, they told me, they told me the controls that they use, which was great. So then I asked a question. I said, right, guys, we're going to, we're going to have a bit of a chat now. And, and I want you to think 
about things over the last sort of three months. Can you share with me a situation with uh, mobile plant and workers on foot when it didn't make sense to you? Otherwise, dumb. Yeah. Can you share a situation over the last three months when when workers on foot and mobile plant it just didn't feel right for you, which is the dangerous. Can you share a situation with me the last three months when the job was much harder than it should have been around using forklifts? The difficult. Oh, difficult. And you can and you can share a situation when when you know it was different for what it would normally be. Hmm. The stories just flowed. And the guy said, the guy said, look, this dumb, dangerous, difficult, different. Can we not put this on a board every day and get everyone to write up? the stuff that is dumb, dangerous, difficult, and different. That's what they, that's what the workers asked. Hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that's where if you can get man, as long as the management understands, look, this is, this is how they perceive this and respecting their point of view. But I think that's where you have to have done that abs- groundwork. Absolutely. And, yeah, yeah. And just from that meeting, the organization um, hadn't realized that um, this the speed humps they'd put in to try and slow traffic, that where they had been positioned was too far away from the zone where it was needed. And yes, the speed hump slowed people down, but once they got over it, they sped up again. (laughs) Okay. Of course. And of course, the normal reaction is, well, no one told us that. I said, well, that's the problem. You weren't listening. Yeah, if you don't ask, they're not going to tell you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but once again, that was a concept that workers could relate to within seconds that generated huge amounts of information in a short period of time that not only helped workers better understand the nature of the risk through that storytelling, but also showed the organization where those current controls weren't working as intended. Now, the good news is the fix was cheap. It's, you know, yeah. 10 Dynabolts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Isn't that just wonderful? Yeah, I mean, some of the some of the solutions. I, I think that's you don't. You're not always going to find. You're not going to go in. The, you're not going to find some crazy, difficult, or complex solution. Often, if you just ask people, they're going to come up with something really simple. You know, yeah. it doesn't. It, it just because they see it every day. I had I was visiting one of our facilities, and I just asked one of the operators. We were we were talking together, and I asked them about you know what's the what's the most dangerous thing you do here every day? You know, mm-hmm. what do you think rep, what's the biggest hazard to you? And, you know, a little bit of it is sort of normalization of, of the, uh, you know, you get used to the hazard, you know, that sort of just, you get the Norwegians have a really good word for it. They call it yemmablin, which is home blind. So home you become, you, mm-hmm. be, yeah, you become home blind. And I, I really like the term because I think it sums it up exactly, um, you know, very succinctly, but when I asked him, he started talking about, okay, yeah, well, there, there's actually nothing with the mach- machine I work. You know, I run the CNC machine every day. I know the tools are sharp. I wear my gloves. 
but he said, we, we put a lathe on the other side of the room here. And actually he goes, it's an old lathe without the same kind of guarding that we've, you know, that a, a modern one would have. And he goes, if something, if that thing, if anything that's in there comes out, he goes, it's coming right towards me. So he goes, I don't turn my back on it when it's running. And I, and then, so I started asking, you know, how often does, is it used? And I mean, it's not a daily thing, but it's several times a week. And so it was like, okay, well, I, and I, I said, look, I, I don't know enough about, about your lathe to, to make any suggestion, you know, what would make your position safer here? It's like, you know, what if, you know, and they just start talking about what if we just put a net, you know, put a, put a, a, a mm -hmm. you know, some, 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 me some mesh up essentially some metal fence that light metal fencing, or if they just actually, if they just reoriented the lathe so that whatever came out of, if something were to come out of it and come loose, it would get thrown against the nearest wall. And uh, so then it's like, okay, well, you, you know, you guys figure, I don't know what it is. I don't know how to do it, but, and it was, it's interesting, just these small conversations. And this was a site that was saying, oh, we, you know, we tried to get reporting, but we got some reports in the beginning. They were all about the same. There were like three or four reports and they were all about the same issue. And once that got resolved, even though the, the, the site leadership took it very seriously, they resolved it quickly. Then the, not, nobody reported anything else. Wow. And so I, I started just asking him and I was there, I said, you know, well, you know, what we just talked about, I said, that's an example of the kind of things when you see stuff like that, just put, you know, write it down because if we don't know, you know, we need to ask you as well, but if you see something, you don't have to wait. You can actually try to, you know, give us those, give us that information. But I think you've got to, you know, at least in the beginning, you have to try to draw it out of people. And then it's up to leadership to show that you're actually going to do something about it. Welcome to Safety Differently Merchandise, the premium sponsor for the Practice of Learning Teams podcast show. Our curated lines of inspirational clothing, headwear, cups, stationery and more, at Safety Differently Merchandise, is befitting of your Safety Differently journey. I am Arthur Taylor, Chief Designer. I have spent decades on Savile Row, and honored to bring my talents, for all fine purveyors and devotees of. Hop. Learning Teams. Safety Differently. Safety 2. And the New View. Please visit the store and purchase our fine goods at safetydifferentlymerch.com. And now, back to the show.